Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast. This is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of FinTech Nexus. I've been doing these shows since 2013, which makes this the longest-running one-on-one interview show in all of FinTech. Thank you for joining me on this journey. If you like this podcast, you should check out our sister shows, Pitch It, the FinTech Startups Podcast with Todd Anderson, and FinTech Coffee Break with Isabel Castro. Or you can listen to everything we produce by subscribing to the FinTech Nexus podcast channel. Before we get started, I want to talk about our flagship event, FinTech Nexus USA, happening in New York City on May 10th and 11th. The world of finance continues to change at a rapid pace, but we will be separating the wheat from the chaff, covering only the most important topics for you over two action-packed days. More than 10,000 one-on-one meetings will take place, and the biggest names in fintech will be on our keynote stage. You know you need to be there, so go ahead and register at fintechnexus.com and use the discount code PODCAST for 15% off. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Soups Ranjan. He is the CEO and co-founder of Sardine. Now, Sardine is a super interesting company. They are focused on the fraud and compliance space. They started off in the most difficult part of this space in crypto. And we talk about that. We talk about the challenges, the different types of fraud that that they're seeing today. You know, we talk about obviously what Sardine offers and the types of products they have. We dig into the weeds a little bit and go and discuss how they're actually combating fraud. You know, we talk about where fraud is coming from, who they're focused on when it comes to uh, onboarding new clients. And we talk about real-time payments and much more. It was a fascinating discussion. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Soups. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Peter. My pleasure. So let's get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. You've you've been at some uh, pretty major fintech names in your career, Revolut and Coinbase, just to name a couple. So why don't you just hit on some of the highlights of what you've done you know, before Sardine? I've spent about four years at Coinbase from 2015 to 2019. I was heading up risk for them, which meant fraud, as well as internal tooling for the compliance teams, as well as data science. And after Coinbase, I went to Revolut. I was heading financial crime for them globally initially, and then later also heading crypto for them. And Revolut is where I met my two co-founders, Aditya, or in short, we call him Azadi, as well as Zahid. And that's where the idea for Sardine came from. Right. Okay. And so then, so tell us a little bit about that. What did you see? Tell us a little bit about the, the founding story there. Yeah, the, the founding story is uh, the following. So uh, yeah, even if you go back to my time at Coinbase, I don't come from payments, or at least at that time, I didn't come from the payments background. Prior to Coinbase, I had spent about 10 years fighting other kinds of security-related issues. So I spent like five years in cybersecurity and five years fighting click fraud right, in advertising. And in a lot of ways, my career has been all about applying uh, machine learning and data science to fighting cybersecurity or click fraud, and now it became payment fraud. So when I look back upon my initial days at Coinbase 2015, when I was given the, the, the goal to reduce fraud rate, I had to come quickly up to speed on, you know, what does ACH mean? What does, uh, you know, all the various jargons and the banking and the credit card industry, et cetera. 
And at that time, I realized that, you know, nobody really teaches you fraud prevention in schools. Mm-hmm. So I got, got a bunch of other fraud leaders together and I started something called the Risk Salon, which is essentially like a meetup, which all the meetings were held under the Chetan House rules that you can say what you want to say without attributing it to the source. So we got together fraud leaders from all sorts of companies in the Valley, grew very quickly and over the next three years to about 4,000 members. And I learned a ton from that. Now, fast forward to Revolut. When I went to Revolut, again, one of the reasons I went to the UK was because I wanted to learn about the international payment methods. Mm -hmm. So at Coinbase, I thought that I was surrounded by folks who were very much on the let's chart a new territory, create a new financial ecosystem. So I learned a ton about about the new world, which we're trying to build. But I didn't have a good understanding about the old as much, right? And therefore, I purposely chose to go to Revolut to learn about all the international payment methods, right? SEPA, faster payments, etc. And now, when I met Adi and Zahid, uh, one of the interesting moments in our career at Revolut was that Adi was in charge of launching Revolut in the US. So when we were launching Revolut in the US, we came from the UK, so we wanted to be a little more risk averse. So we wanted to launch Revolut in the US while enabling 3D Secure whenever you're loading money into the Revolut wallet in the US, because you shift the liability and therefore you don't really need to care so much about fraud prevention. But the conversion rate went haywire. It was like right. abysmally low, like 30-ish, 40-ish percent. So the UX was terrible, right? So those are some of the seeds that you know were going on, on in our heads, right? Like it has to be easier for fintechs to launch. It has to be easier for fintech entrepreneurs to, to grow and scale without actually worrying about fraud or compliance. So when we started Sardine, that, that was our motto, that was our goal, that you know a fintech entrepreneur of today should not have to go through what I had to go through, right? From my time at Coinbase, learning up quickly all these things. It should be much easier and they should really just focus on their idea and product market fit and leave the, the hard, hairy fraud and compliance issues to a company like Sardine. Right, got you. Okay, so I got to ask you, why did you call it Sardine? And is there a story behind that name? Oh yeah, there are a couple of stories. So, so the name Sardine stands Actually, the first three letters are is suspicious activity reports. Ah, right. And, yep. Yeah, and you file a SAR whenever there's a fraud case in the U.S. above two thousand dollars, or whenever there's a suspected money laundering, right? And uh, the the second reason is that it's fishy, <laughs> so therefore you you can make a, a lot of memes out of it, and it's also easy to say, right? So you don't have to you know struggle with with pronouncing it or or spelling it. Right. You can say it in a loud bar and people get it immediately. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. So then let's just take a step back for a second. When you look at the the landscape today, both here in the US and internationally, then what are the you know the biggest fraud and, and compliance challenges that we face here in fintech? A couple of fastest growing trends, right? So one is scams, right? So we increasingly like to say that, you know, as Faster payment methods take off, like like Zelle already, and then soon FedNow and RTP, etc. So with faster payments comes faster fraud, right? Mm-hmm. Or scams, right? And as as you probably saw in the UK as well, the dollars lost to scams has actually overtaken the dollars lost to credit card fraud, right? Mm-hmm. So we are very concerned that 
folks are not at all prepared to uh, to deal with the amount of scams that are coming all the way, right? And the money moves very quickly, and it, there's no recourse built in, right, into any of the the networks like Zelle or RTP, etc. Right? These scams they take multiple forms, right? There's the the classic tech support scams, all the romance scams, as well as the uh, the brokerage or you know crypto investment scams, and then another form recently has been what is called a big butchering scam. I can explain each of them. Right. Yeah. Please do. Please do. So uh, a romance scam would be you get befriended by someone, you start caring for that person, you think they really exist, but they don't. And then over time, they they get money out of you, which you keep sending via wires. So that's classic. Tech support scam would be you are searching the internet for you know some issue that you're having on your computer. It used to be classically Microsoft tech support, or it used to be not an antivirus, but nowadays it's uh, Taken the form of, you know, even Amazon or Instacart tech support, right? Like, hey, why did my grocery delivery not arrive? Or what happened to my delivery from Amazon? You go online and you try and search for uh, a phone number for Amazon, except you get advertised a fake phone number set up by a hacker. Other delivery mechanism is you get a text from what appears to be Amazon, except it's not Amazon. And you click a link and you think that you are headed to Amazon site, but it's a lookalike site, right? And then you get fished, essentially. You enter your credentials, as in your username, password, even your 2FA token, except you're entering it in a lookalike site, and then the attacker quickly takes the credentials and replays it on the real site and takes all your money, right? Mm-hmm. The other nefarious forms of it that we've seen is that, you know, the attackers often then tell them, hey, you know, Amazon owes, owes you a refund for an order. But in order for us to give you the refund, you first have to send me $100 of Bitcoin. So we've seen people being socially engineered into actually going to a physical Bitcoin ATM. And it's surprising how many people fall for it. And it doesn't click in the head that why would Amazon want you to actually do a physical Bitcoin ATM right. and send me Bitcoins, right? But then people do fall for it because there's the psychological element here of greed, right? Or they go to like crypto on ramps, like Sardine, right? They go to MetaMask and they buy crypto, except they think they're sending it to Amazon, but they're sending it to the scammer, right? Right. There's another one which I actually forgot. It's it's very fastly growing in popularity. It's called the Zelle scams or the Zelle refund scams. Right. Right. So the refund scams are your bank all of a sudden emails you, texts you, calls you saying, hey, we owe you a refund. But in order for you, to get the refund, you have to verify who you say you are. And then they, again, take you to a lookalike website. Or in, in fact, they will guide you to the actual bank site as well. And then in this case, they will install tools like TeamViewer, AnyDesk, or Citrix. These are remote desktop screen sharing tools. So they install this tool on the victim's computer. They can then guide the victim through the motion of going to the bank site and actually convincing them, you got to first send money somewhere else before the bank gives you a refund and all this time they're controlling the screen or guiding the user through the process right so those scams feel like they're really social as much as technological in nature right so the technology piece i'm sure you've you've got nailed but i'm just curious before we move on the social piece seems like a a really difficult challenge to overcome the social piece is is actually more about education Right. right. The other element here is, and you know, I'm increasingly realizing that all these scams actually have nothing. If you think about, it, they have nothing to do with with the crypto exchange. 
right. or with Amazon for the gift cards, or they have nothing to do with the, with the banks, right? All these institutions are being literally just used as a vehicle. The real issue at hand is that when you get a text message or a call from someone, you don't really know who they are. That is the right. core, right? You can't really trust. I don't really trust uh, anyone who calls me anymore or texts me anymore because you can easily spoof someone's phone number nowadays very easily. And there's a fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is that when the internet was built, right? So all the internet protocols that you look at, like SIP for internet telephony or emails or SMS, etc., they don't actually verify the senders at all. So that is a fundamental issue. So you can no longer trust where the message is coming right. from. There's only one country which actually, as of last month, which passed a regulation, which is Singapore, saying that whenever someone is sending a text message in Singapore, if they have not registered with a central authority in Singapore, then you as the recipient, when you get that message, you will actually be shown that this message is coming from someone untrustworthy, and it could be a scam or a phishing message. So now the wow. onus has fallen on all the centers to go and start registering. And this is right. actually all the telcos have to comply with it, right? So that is the sea level change we need, right? Right. I think I get texts almost every day these days that look like they're scam texts with, you know, your UPS package hasn't been delivered and whatever it is, then they want you to go and click on something. And it's, just, it's a major problem. But anyway, I want to talk about Sardine now for a bit. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what it is you guys do, what are the products you offer? So Sardine is all uh, about behavior-based or behavior-infused fraud prevention, KYC, AML compliance, as well as payments. Behavior-based in the following sense that, you know, you've had a lot of fraud prevention companies built over the past because fraud is as old as money, except all those fraud prevention companies, they were built for, let's say, e-commerce, right? So when you're trying to solve for e-commerce fraud, you look at shipping address and shopping cart, and you can, for the most part, get away with it. Is the person who entered this card, are they shipping it to a drop shipping PO box? Or did they just add like the highest value goods into the shopping cart? But now when it comes to financial institutions like fintech or neobanks or crypto or NFT platforms or gift cards, et cetera, right? Whenever you are adding a payment method, like a card number or a bank account number or number to purchase something, you don't have shipping address and shopping cart. All you have access to is user's behavior, which is, how you type, how you swipe, scroll, how you move the mouse, how you hold the phone, all of that. So for example, if I, let's say, Peter, I stole your phone number or your card number and I'm trying to purchase crypto or a gift card, I'm going to behave very differently. I'm going to copy-paste your information, except if I was using my info, it will be autofilled by the browser, or I'll be distracted while typing it. Or in the case of account takeovers, right? So if I stole your phone and I know your phone pin code, which is not another classic attack vector, then the way I hold your phone when I'm opening up, let's say, a Revolut or a Monzo app, the way I hold your phone will be very different than the way you hold your phone. So we are all about these behavior biometrics. And we've built one of the most sophisticated behavior biometric SDKs out there. And we use this device and behavior data to fight fraud at you know, all sorts of checkpoints. At the time of account opening, we fight identity fraud. Then at the time of account funding, as in when you're loading money into a wallet or purchasing a digital asset, we fight payment fraud as an ACH fraud or card fraud. And then finally, we help fintechs who are card issuers when they have issued a card. We help them with issuing fraud, which is 
whenever I'm swiping a card, let's say issued by Revolut, which is in your name, but if I picked it up, I'm going to spend it at a you know location that you never visit or at an MCC that you never interact with or times of day that you never shop at, right? So we look at those anomalous patterns as well. Right. That's really interesting. So I'm curious about some of the, the things you talked about there, like the device data. And I'm wondering if you could sort of explain a little bit more. I'm thinking about like, okay, so is Apple storing the information about how I hold my device? And then you see that somebody else has it and is not doing it the same way. I mean, and typing and autofill and all that sort of thing. I guess, how are you comparing it to the authentic person? Because obviously, you know, if someone's using a bot, that's pretty obvious. I'm sure it's pretty easy to compare. But if it's just a criminal that's typing and doing things, what are the actual mechanisms? How do you detect the fraud? We are all about intrinsic behavior. So we don't do, uh, at least today, we don't do voice or facial recognition. We Mm -hmm. don't have face ID like products today. For that, we rely on what Apple has. Now, the theory we have is that, and I can elaborate on that theory later, and then I'll answer your question. The The theory we have is that, you know, extrinsic behavior, like your face or your touch ID, right? Those can also be stolen, right? You can be like easily coerced and at that point to do stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and still pass face ID, but your intrinsic behavior will never change, right? Which is like how you hold the phone. And what we do is we collect thousands of data points via our SDKs, right? Like how you type, swipe, scroll, how you hold the phone. And we then uh, pass it into our into our systems where we are then computing your behavior profile using various machine learning algorithms. Couple of caveats I want to point out. One, we are highly privacy aware in the sense that when you're typing, we are not at all interested in the content. We map every single character you type into a random key. And in that respect, we are actually, we work with, card tokenization providers where they insert our SDK uh, and therefore we still are PCI compliant, right? Mm-hmm. And the other interesting thing is that like if I look back upon my time at Coinbase, like 90% of fraud or chargebacks used to come from fully verified identities. And pretty much all the companies, the 200 plus companies that we work with, they came to us even though they had a KYC system in place, right? Mm-hmm which means that the current KYC providers, they don't really stop fraud. And therefore we realize that you have to really look at a user's behavior when they're entering their identity. For example, if I enter my social security number, I'm gonna type it quickly from long-term memory. But if I have stolen yours, then I'm gonna be distracted while typing it. I'll context switch a lot while looking it up or I'll just copy paste it. Right, that's super interesting. And I can see there's all kinds of obviously use cases for that. but. So tell me a little bit about who your, you know, you mentioned 200 plus you know, customers that you have. Are these mainly fintech companies? I mean, I could imagine that uh, a huge range of companies would have these needs. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And actually, before I answer that question, there's one other thing I forgot to mention, which was that, so we offer multiple products. So besides our risk platform, we also offer another product, which is payments, right? And then the third product is our risk insights, which is a data consortium. So the reason we built payments is because when it comes to loading money into a wallet, the hardest part is actually taking care of all the fraud and compliance issues. Right. So therefore, we have a fully indemnified payments offering where we take care of all the hard fraud and compliance issues. The first instantiation of it is as a crypto on-ramp. 
So today that is live on about 30 different wallets like MetaMask, a hardware wallet like Ledger, browsers like Brave, and music NFT companies like Royal or you know Tom Brady's NFT company Autograph. So in all these places today, you can buy 30 plus different crypto assets, Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, using Sardine. And Sardine offers instant ACH as well as card rails for enabling the purchase. Instant ACH is, is our core differentiated offering, which no one else has, where what we've done is ACH, of course, is batch settled. But we realize that you know a lot of providers they ask you to load money via ACH and then ask you to wait for five days, but the price of crypto has moved in the meantime. Right. Right. So we allow you to purchase that crypto instantly. And in some cases, we allow you to withdraw a portion of it instantly as well. So this is literally putting uh, our money where our mouth is and we're standing by our fraud prevention algorithms. Right. Right. Okay. So, so we've got the, the crypto use case there. And what, what about outside of crypto? So outside of crypto, so later this year, we'll have our payments offering launching for funding a new bank wallet as well. Mm. So, you know, that will enable any new bank, any digital wallet, if they want to use fully indemnified ACH to allow folks to fund, we'll offer that. Or if they want to use card reels to fund, we'll, use, we'll allow that as well. Right, right. Okay. When you're talking about payments, are you mainly talking about the loading of crypto wallets? Is that sort of the main product today? Is it? Yeah, today it's crypto wallets. Yeah, that's right. Gotcha. Okay. And then when you're looking at the fraud attempts there, where are they coming from? Is it mainly, are we seeing more organized crime with that are very sophisticated, more so than the this, the individual trying to, trying to game the system? Where's it coming from? In crypto on ramps, a lot of it is um, social engineering, some of the scams that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. There is also a little bit of friendly fraud, right? So friendly fraud is essentially, you know, folks realizing that the trade went against them and therefore they, they, they claim that they didn't do it. And then there is also a very specific type of scam slash fraud going on in the crypto world, which is that of smart contract malware. Right. So basically, I'm, I'm sure you, you, you get tweeted at by these, you know, random airdrops. And if yep. you ever wondered what they are really trying to do, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to uh, get you to connect your MetaMask wallet or any wallet that you use to this random smart contract, which is malicious. And the smart contract is then going to either A, ask for permissions that you wouldn't have otherwise given. Like there's a permission set of permissions called unlimited token allowance, right? Which means that anyone, if you give a contract that permission, then any uh, assets in your wallet could be sort of siphoned off by that, right? Or the more sophisticated ones, they don't ask for those permissions, but they they hide something, obfuscate something in code, which allows them to essentially do the same thing as in take all the assets off. So now what happens is, imagine you interact with, a, with, with such an airdrop, thinking that you'll get, you'll get rich from that airdrop. Mm -hmm. Of course, they may actually give you an airdrop and you're happy with it, but later, when you go and try to buy crypto using a sardine, right, our on-ramp, what'll happen is that the crypto will not really arrive in your wallet. It'll just be siphoned off the other direction. Okay. So we we think that there's a big need to build what I'm calling like the very sign for Web3. Right. So like attributable, allow-listed contracts, which are good reputation. Right, right. Gotcha. Okay. So then 
like when you detect fraud, when you're working with a lot of the different wallets, I mean, some of which are, are decentralized, what are you sending back to to MetaMask or to to Ledger or whatever, like indicating that this is a bad actor? In that case, actually, so the wallets today they they completely rely on Sardine for KYC as well as you know, the payments, right? Okay. So there's no information sharing back, right? So we don't share information back with the wallets, and in a lot of cases, they don't want that information to be shared back with them. Right. Someone's going to fail the KYC process, right? If they're potentially a bad actor, what? Is the message sent back to to MetaMask that this person's a bad actor, and then it's up to them to kind of decide what they want to do with that, or how does it work? No, neither that. So we we offer like a full widget. So it's, in that case, a customer who is buying crypto on a MetaMask or Ledger, it's actually a Sardine customer. So they're going through a KYC facilitated by Sardine, and if there's a failure, then we don't share any information back with okay. any of our wallets, okay. right? So it's yeah, the wallets they. They've taken the stance that you know they a lot of DeFi wallets. The reason a lot of them are getting popular is because they're privacy aware and they want to keep keep it like that. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so you touched on real time payments earlier in the interview here, and I want to just dig into it a little bit because, as you say, real time payments, real time fraud potentially. What is that going to mean? I mean, we already have some forms of real time payments in uh, you know the clearinghouse and. Zelle, although it's not pure real time, what what do we have to prepare for when we do? Because I think it's inevitable that we are going to have a real time payment system, certainly by the end of the decade, that everyone is using. So how are you how are you preparing for that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So one of our efforts, which I alluded to earlier, that's our third product. We call it Insights. So that is our data sharing consortium. So the idea there is that we'll soon need to have a database of trusted counterparties. For example, uh, Peter, if you're paying your gardener via Zelle, you, of course, have that gardener as a trusted contact. But the rest of the ecosystem should also know that they should trust this gardener, right? So how can we enable uh, different entities in the financial ecosystem to share like a list of trusted counterparties, right? Mm-hmm. Or because on the other hand, right, like if you got scammed by you know someone from uh, India saying that, hey, send me uh, dollars, right? then we want to quickly spread this information across the network such that no one else gets scammed as well. Gotcha. That's great. And we are launching this consortium very soon. So like in about a month's time, we hired a gentleman named Ravi Loganathan, who was formerly the chief data officer at Early Warning Systems. So Mm -hmm. he knows a thing or two about building consortiums. So he's leading the charge for us. We're starting it uh, with about 10 founding members. We have about eight identified. The idea would be to set it up as a as an entity uh, under the Sardine Top Co, but a separate entity, and then have all these uh, founding members. They, they they create governance rules as well as you know pricing, etc. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, uh, a couple of things we want to get to before we close. And you know, I noticed you have, you have a pretty impressive cap table with some of the investors that you've attracted here. The least of which is A16Z. I saw that Angela Strange is actually on your board. Famous. Uh, yeah, fintech-focused VC. I'd love to know sort of what those conversations are like. How, and how are you leveraging the expertise from some of the people on your cap table? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so we've been really fortunate with you know, having some some of the the sharpest minds in this industry helping us along. So yeah, so we have on our board Angela Strange. 
We also have our the seed lead investor, Ross Fubini from XYZ VC. He had previously started Village Global as well. So he's also on the board. So E16Z led both our A and the B rounds. And in the B round, we also have Visa. And in the A round, we had Experian. And we also have the help of many, many other investors. I'll, I'll probably forget <laughs> them all, but yeah, a few that come to mind are you know, Nika, Activant, Sound Ventures, etc. Mm-hmm. Our board meetings are actually uh, pretty interesting. So the way I like to lead them is I actually send them a written update, which is usually 50 pages long, about, <laughs> about a week before the board meeting. The expectation is that, you know, everyone on the board, we have, you know, besides the board members, we have several observers. The expectation is that everyone comes prepared, having read it. And I then just do like a half hour exec summary discussion during the board meeting. And then we do like three discussion topics. And during the discussion topics, you know, the topics could be things like, hey, how should sardine diversify into other high-risk categories for fraud product, right? So that was the last discussion topic. Mm-hmm. And we have the saying now that you know, if you grow up in a tough neighborhood, like crypto, then you learn a trick or two. So therefore, for fraud prevention, we are now you know going into you know, other high-risk categories. Like we already have one of the largest cannabis payments processors with their fraud. We just signed one of the largest gift card processors for their fraud. And we also just recently signed one of the, the, the largest well-known luxury brand for their digital collectible fraud prevention. So therefore, the board meeting, that is that was one of the topics. How, what are the adjacent categories we should go after? Who can help us? And our board members and our investors, they, they're very fortunate that they all pull up their sleeves and they, they help us with, with intros. We like to almost see them as part of the company and you know they help us with, with a lot of that BD, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one. The second help is, of course, you know, the always Angela and Ross and others, they're always available to me as a sort of a sounding board on, you know, any other thorny topics, right? Like, for example, with the SVB crisis or before that, you know, also how, how should we be growing the company or the team? What are the gaps? Who should we be hiring, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so those are a few that come to my mind. I appreciate the color there. That's That's super interesting. Okay, so then last question then. What is next for Sardine? You've got a lot of places you can take this. Um, what are you? What are some of the things that are coming down the pipe? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I alluded to it earlier. So number one for our fraud prevention platform or for our risk platform, a couple of things. So one is, you know, we're diversifying into high-risk categories, right? So besides the ones that I mentioned, we are also looking into other categories like OTA, which is travel. And then we are also looking into anyone who has a wallet, like any physical retailer, like the likes of Target, Home Depot, et cetera, they all have a, a closed loop card. Can we help them with their fraud? So that's more about go-to-market diversification, right? The other interesting thing is that we, because we built a platform, which is one API, one contract, one dashboard for both fraud and compliance teams, we recently signed Stearns Bank as our first sponsor bank customer. And now what Stern is doing is that they, whenever they're onboarding a fintech, right, they have full visibility into KYC AML. And it's a shared visibility between the sponsor bank, the fintech. So we are taking that approach of, we call it portfolio view, like this mm-hmm. sort of a shared view, right? Uh, portfolio view of KYC. We're taking this approach to other, you know, sponsor banks and banking as a service platforms. So you'll see us, you know, uh, continuously iterating and developing more features there. So that's on the risk platform side. The the payment side, as we discussed earlier, already enable uh, 
Kitron ramp soon later this year, we'll build an API first product, which will then enable other use cases like loading money into a new bank wallet. Right? Right. So that'll be the second. And then the third is uh, our risk insights consortium. We're going to be launching it later this year. And you're starting with a couple of use cases. One is sharing data about ACH fraud. And then the second is sharing data about counterparties. Right, right. Okay, great. Well, we'll have to leave it there, Supes. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Really fascinating what, you, what you're building there. And, uh, and best of luck to you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for having me, Peter. I appreciate the time. If you like the show, please go ahead and give it a review on the podcast platform of your choice. And be sure to tell your friends and colleagues about it. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye.